I was not just uh, acting out the uh, part of Elijah running for his life. I remembered I have statistics, so it's always it's always fun to have statistics. So he said, hopefully. So, um, <clears throat> so I need a place. All right. So um, this this um, passage, I, I figured out that I've probably preached about between um, seven hundred and eight hundred sermons in the course of my career as a pastor. And this is, I kid you not, one of the most irritating passages I think I've ever read. And I'll tell you why. It's not the passage. The passage is fine. In fact, the passage actually um, is part of the answer to the irritation. But um, but the problem is the people who have said things about it. So um, the this passage, uh, you know, every week I, I study a bunch of different resources. There's scholarly works, there's commentaries and so forth. It's kind of like the little footnotes in your Bible, but more so. So I, I, I look through those things every week and kind of try to figure out, you know, if that's helpful in understanding the, the culture and so forth. And this week, the things that people wrote about Elijah were really irritating. Let me give you some examples, okay? They said that Elijah was being petulant. So I had to look that up. It means to be um, like a spoiled child, okay, you know, bottom lip out, that kind of thing, right? So so they said he was petulant. They said he was inordinately prideful. They said he was weak, mistaken, and in need of God's rebuke. And I thought to myself, well, I hope that if you have suffered from depression or someone you know has suffered from depression, that they got better advice from Christians than the labeling and the, the scolding that... Elijah gets in so many commentaries today. I hope so. And if you don't, if you don't suffer from depression, that's fine. Hold on to this. You might. Um, and if you don't, that's fine because somebody you care about does. So these are the statistics I was talking about. So according to the National Institutes of Health, one man in 16 has at least one major depressive event in the course of their life, and one in ten women do. Among young adults, 18 to 25, the number is almost one in five. And among teenagers, adolescents, the number is more than one in five. According to the Gallup organization, they did a poll earlier this year, and they found in 2003, they had they recorded the highest rates of depression in our country that they have measured since they began measuring depression. They said it was rising before COVID, but it really took off then. The World Health Organization estimates about one person in 20 is suffering from depression, and it leads to suicidality and um, uh, uh, drug abuse and other other ways that people try to self medicate. So. Um, just two more stat, uh, three more stats. So, uh, let me just give you some statistics about Alaska. Alaska has four times the national average rate of death for alcohol poisoning. And in Alaska, one in 12 teens used alcohol last month. And Alaska teens are 25% more likely to use, no, they use, they use drugs 25% more, more than the average American teenager. So, this is a problem that even if you don't suffer from depression, somebody you know does. And the question I would like to look at is, does our faith have anything to say to people except 
Stop being a baby. Stop being petulant. Stop being inordinately prideful. You're weak, mistaken, and you're in need of God's rebuke. Does our faith have anything to say to that? Well, it does. So, what does our faith say? Well, this passage is actually a pretty good place to find the answer to that. So, so let's take a look at it. Um, we are we are in a, um, a conversation we've been looking for the last several weeks at the the life of Elijah. <clears throat> Elijah was a prophet who was ministering about eight centuries, almost nine centuries before the time of Christ, in uh, what was called then the Northern Kingdom of Israel. So uh, the, the the nation of Israel had previously been one nation, but there was a civil war, and they divided into the the larger nation in uh, in the north was Israel, the, s- the smaller nation in the south was Judah. And so he's ministering in the, the large nation of Israel. And uh, as we've been looking at this, we've seen that um, that Isaiah has has um, been uh, complaining. He's been he's been uh, prophesying to the uh, to the the establishment, the royalty of um, Israel, that they had done wrong when they imported these foreign gods from the nation to their north. So further north than them is the nation of Phoenicia, and particularly the the places called uh, Tyre and Sidon. And one of the one of the um, royalty of that country had married into the royal royalty of Israel, and they brought these gods with them. So. Um, uh, Elijah is, is telling them, no, don't do that. Uh, there is one God for Israel, and uh, these foreign gods do not belong here. So so that's what he's been talking about. That's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And last week we looked at this this kind of uh, cosmic bake-off that Elijah uh, set up. He, he set up a, a contest between the prophets of Baal and, and, and himself, the prophet of the Lord, 450 prophets of Baal chanted and prayed all day long, and they never got any response from Baal. Um, whereas Elijah, he, pray, he prayed a single prayer, and fire fell, and um, God uh, consumed the sacrifice there on Mount Carmel. So, so that is the backstory as we read that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So he had killed all of Baal's prophets with the sword, and then Jezebel said, "Okay, I've been wrong all this time." Now I know that the Lord is God, and I'm going to switch sides. No, she doesn't say that. She says, um, she sends a messenger to Elijah with this message, May the gods do whatever they want to me, if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of them. So, Elijah just had this great big success. Um, he's he's uh, overcome the prophets of Baal. And, um, and what does he do now? He is terrified. He gets up and he runs for his life. He arrived at Beersheba in Judah. So uh, remember, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. He's coming from the northern kingdom. He goes to the southern kingdom, and he goes to the far southern end of the, the, the southern kingdom. He's gone as far as he can and still be part of the, the land of Israel broadly. Um, so he's gone down there, and what does he do there? <clears throat> he leaves his assistant there. He isolates, right? He's saying, I'm in trouble um, and I'm going to just be by myself. So um, now, now we know he's afraid because he runs away. But but we see that there's more to it than that. In in verse four, he says um, uh, he 
he himself went further on into the desert a day's journey. So a, a, a day's journey further south, he gets to, he finds a solitary broom bush, sits down under it, and what does he do? Does he say, protect me, Lord, from from Jezebel? That's not what he says. He says, it's more than enough, Lord. Take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. He says, I've had enough. I'm just done. That's it. I quit. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Uh, people have debated exactly what he's getting at there. Uh, probably, you know, what, what seems to make the most sense to me is they're saying, he is saying, I don't want to live a long time, right? Uh, my ancestors died, you know, my, my parents, my grandparents and so forth. They had normal lifespans. Don't prolong my life. So maybe he's fairly old and, you know, getting to that place in his life where he's thinking, I don't want to live 150 years, right? No, just now's a good time. But he's depressed. He says, he says, um, he says, I've had enough. And we know from what he answers God later on in the story, we know that he considers himself a failure. He thinks that he's, he's, he's done what he could. He put his heart into his ministry. He swung for the fences and he struck out. He did everything he could, but he's a failure. So, what does he do? He lays down and goes to sleep under the solitary broom bush. So, suddenly, a messenger taps him. Now, the the writer is kind of playing on the word messenger. The word messenger is also the word for angel. I mean, an angel is a messenger of God. So the writer is saying, well, the last messenger we saw was the messenger from from Jezebel, and now he gets another messenger, and there's a moment of suspense. Who is this messenger? And then we find out it's a messenger from God. And what does the messenger do? He says, get up and eat something. And so he opens his eyes, and he sees that food has been prepared for him. There's flatbread baked on uh, glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. So what does he do? He eats and he drinks. The very first thing... God does to him is provide for his bodily needs. So he goes to sleep and then he's woken up again. The messenger returns a second time and taps him and says, get up, eat some more. You've got a journey ahead of you. You want to be strong. You want to have enough food to survive the journey. So he says, get up. You have a difficult road ahead of you. So what what do we learn about that? What, what does that teach us? It teaches us that God knows we have bodies, right? This is not the last thing God concerns himself with. This is not the last part of his interaction with with um, Ezekiel. It's the first part. It's the first part. He makes sure that uh, Elijah has rest and food. He, he, he has what he needs to keep his body together. God knows we have bodies. God not only knows we have bodies, God has experienced having a body because Jesus took a body on himself and Jesus slept and Jesus ate. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be sleepy. God knows we have bodies. And I'm guessing that if they had them in those days, God might have provided some medication, maybe some SSRIs, some Zoloft or something like that. I don't know. Right? I don't know. But God knows that Elijah has a body. And often depression has a biological cause. And so God takes care of Elijah's body. So 
He is now strengthened. He goes, he goes on this journey. He goes 40 days through the wilderness and finally arrives at Horeb, Mount, God's mountain. So Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And he goes into a cave and spends the night. He goes to sleep again. And while he's there, the Lord's word comes to him and says, Why are you here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces. So I've been passionate for you. I've been passionate. I've been zealous in other translations. I've, this has been the consuming thing that I have done for three years, right? I've been very passionate, but it's been useless. It's been a flop. The Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've murdered your prophets with the sword. All my effort is for nothing. And now I'm alone. There's nobody left but me. I'm the only one left, and they want to take my life too. I did what I could. I poured my heart into it, and I failed. And God says, you are inordinately prideful. You're being petulant. You're weak, mistaken, and need my rebuke. Is that what your copy says? Mine doesn't. Mine says, God says, hmm. Go ahead and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. And so Elijah does. A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And then, after the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. And here, Elijah realizes that is God passing by. He wraps his face in his coat because no one can look at God and live. And he goes out and he stands at the cave's entrance. And a voice comes to him and says, Why are you here, Elijah? And he repeats his answer word for word. He says, I've failed. I I did everything I could, but nothing has changed. He says, they've torn down your altars, murdered your prophets, and I'm all alone. And so God says to him, okay, here's what I want you to do says, go back through the desert to Damascus, anoint Hazael as king of Aram, also anoint Jehu, Nimshi's son, as king of Israel, and anoint Elisha from Abel-Meholah, Shaphat's son, to succeed you as a prophet. So he says, here's some things I want you to do. I have tasks for you. You may be a failure, but you're not too big of a failure for me to use because I'm not just about the big events. I'm not just about Mount Carmel, right? I'm the God of the small, quiet places as well. And if you think your ministry has been a failure, I can work there too. right? I'm not just about the peaks. I'm about the valleys. I'm not just about the winds. I'm about the losses. I can work in all these places. So go and do these things. You have a mission. Your mission is to do these anointings, to change the course of nations, to, to um, essentially, uh, if you read on, You'll see what happens is there's there's basically um, uh, a coup in in Aram, which is a country off to the north and and um, 
east of, of uh, Israel, and then also uh, a coup in Israel. So he says, anoint these people who aren't king to be king. Tell them that I will back their play. And and also, by the way, we got to work on your isolation. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to give you a little helper. So um, I'm going to give you um, uh, a successor, Elisha. And while you're training him, you'll have somebody around so you won't be isolated. So he says, I'm going to give you... Oh, and, and by the way, there's plenty more where he came from, right? He says, he says, I've preserved 7,000 um, who have not bowed down to Baal. So, so Elisha is just one of many. So I'm going to get you a friend. I'm going to get you somebody so that you can have, you won't be isolated. And so, so that's where we leave the story. It's kind of a cliffhanger. We're going to come back next week. We're going to see what happens with Elijah, but, but. The lesson for us, the reason we're looking at this is we don't really care what happens in Aram or, or Israel, right? That's a dead letter 2,800 years ago. We don't care. We are interested to know what does our faith say to people who are depressed. And that's what I want to review here. We've already talked about it some, but if we look at this, what do we see? We see the first lesson is don't scold, right? God never scolds Elijah. And too often Christians do. If we don't say things like you're being petulant or you're, you're, um, you're weak, mistaken, and in need of rebuke, we might say things like this. We might say, well, you just need to pray more. Or you need to have more faith. Or God works all things for good for those who love the Lord. And we have to ask ourselves, is that really helpful? Is that being helpful? And is it helping them or is it just helping us? Because we can kind of check the box and move on. So don't scold people and don't give them trite messages. Because God doesn't. The second thing we learn here is that bodies matter. We are embodied creatures. Someplace in my brain is the intersection between my physiology and my mind. And so when we're talking about mood disorders, or any other kind of mental problem, we have to realize it starts with our physiology. And so for some people, that's going to mean medication. For some people, it's going to mean, really, how much are you sleeping? You know, Jesus needed sleep. You think you're better than him? So how much are you sleeping? And are you eating the right food? You know, are you, you know, famously the Twinkie diet, right, back in the 70s, right? It's not good for your mental health. So what are you eating? You are an embodied creature. We are not Star Trek energy beings. We have to ask ourselves, am I taking care of my body? And am I sensitive to the reality that at some place my mind is tied into my physiology? So the second thing is bodies matter. The third thing is that people matter. Elijah needed somebody to be with. He was clearly depressed. He he isolated himself from his, his assistant and goes off on a day's journey because he, he doesn't want to be a failure around other people. And God says, well, I'm going to give you someone anyway. God, what is the first thing God says to the man in the garden? He says, he says it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper. 
God knows we are social creatures. We're not just embodied, we are social. And we need people in our lives. And lastly, purpose matters. God gives Elijah a purpose, a renewed sense of what it is he's doing. And the thing about these, right, um, not scolding, I don't know if Christians are any good at that, but but we should be. We should try harder. But the other things, right, when we, when we look at these things, right, when we, when we hear about bodies mattering, you know, this is why we have ministries of compassion. It's why we support Lutheran social services, because it is important. Bodies are important. People get hungry. People need water. People need to sleep. People need shelter. And the church works on these things because we believe people have bodies that matter. And people matter. That the church is itself a community. You know, if you, if you look up the word church, what is it? You see definitions like the body of Christ, where the, the individual members of the body are people. Where, 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 um, where the stones that make up a living house. We are a community. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Christians are the community of the children of God. And everybody who has put their trust in Jesus is a brother or a sister. No one should be isolated if the church is doing its job because people matter. And purpose matters. God, uh, the, the, the confessions say that the, the chief end of man is to love God and enjoy God forever. But the scripture reminds us that we are given gifts so that we can be about the work that God has called us to. Some of us have jobs to equip the saints for their ministries. Others have a particular ministry. They're a parent. They're a stockbroker. They're a baker or a candlestick maker. We all have a purpose. And God, God's, the purposes of God are not just in the big Mount Carmel events. They're in the still, small, quiet places. So the church should be about helping people find their purpose and then lean into it where they know that that when they fall down, somebody will be there to encourage them and maybe pick them up and help them get started again. This is what the church is called to be. Not people who scold and shake our fingers, not people who give labels and say, well, you're depressed, get over it. But to actually be a place where people like Elijah can be who God is calling them to be. Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, it is it is embarrassing that these scholars, who were so quick to say that the demons that Jesus casts out in the New Testament are in fact some kind of mental illness, are so slow to recognize the depression that I, that Elijah is dealing with. Lord, help us to be more ready to see people who are hurting, people who are lonely and isolated, people who have no energy and can't explain why. Help us to be sensitive to, to the reality that our bodies matter and other people's bodies matter too. Help us, Lord, so that we can be truly a community that people can be part of, where they can find friends and 
others to encourage them in their walk. And finally, Lord, we pray that you would give us a sense of our purpose so that we would know that nobody here is here by accident, that you have a purpose for every one of us, and that we can all do things that echo through the years every bit as much as what Elijah did when he anointed anointed those kings and prophets. Lord, help us to be that kind of church and that kind of Christian. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.